Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, the story of Janet Christensen's murder. But first, your true crime headlines. A former professional skateboarder who was convicted and jailed for the rape and murder of a 22-year-old model in 1991 has been deemed eligible for parole, despite the objections of prosecutors. Mark Anthony Gator Rogowski was 24 when he raped and murdered Jessica Bergston inside his condo in Carlsbad, California, 28 years ago. Bergston was a friend of Rogowski's ex-girlfriend, and Rogowski admitted to killing the young woman as an act of misplaced revenge against the ex who had dumped him. Bergston, who relocated to Southern California shortly before the killing, had met Rogowski through his ex-girlfriend years earlier in Arizona, and she reached out to him after she moved. They arranged to meet up and spent the day drinking and watching a movie at his condo. At one point, Rogowski retrieved a metal steering wheel lock from his garage and clubbed Bergston with it, then handcuffed the dazed woman to his bed and raped her repeatedly. He then stuffed her body into a surfboard bag and strangled her, then buried her body in the desert, where it was found by hikers 10 days later. Rogowski, a recently converted born-again Christian, confessed to his pastor about a month after the slaying, and then turned himself in to the police. He pleaded guilty and received a sentence of six years for the rape and 25 years to life for the murder, and this was his third attempt at parole. The parole board made the recommendations that Rogowski, now 53, be granted release, citing his clean record in prison, his remorse for his crimes, and the rehabilitative efforts he made while incarcerated. The decision was criticized by supervising Deputy District Attorney Richard Sachs, who said that Rogowski still poses a danger to the community, particularly to women. The state parole board now has 120 days to finalize the decision, which would then be sent to California Governor Gavin Newsom for review. An 18-year-old college freshman was stabbed to death during a robbery in a New York City park, and now police have charged a 13-year-old boy with capital murder for his role in the crime. Barnard College freshman Tessa Majors was walking through Morningside Park on Wednesday night when she was approached by between one and three assailants, according to police. There was a struggle during their attempt to rob the young woman, and one of the assailants stabbed Majors, who then staggered up a flight of stairs and collapsed near a security booth. The guard rendered aid and Majors was rushed to a local hospital where she died of her injuries. Morningside Park which occupies a narrow, 13-block-long chunk of Harlem near Columbia University and Barnard College, had more robbery reports this year than any other park in New York City. Police data showed 20 robberies in or around the park this year, compared to seven last year. The 13-year-old who has been charged in connection with Major's death has not been identified. But police say that after his arrest, he implicated himself in the robbery and identified two 14-year-old co-conspirators, one of whom is believed to have stabbed Majors. Those teenagers have not yet been arrested. The 13-year-old was charged with second-degree felony murder, robbery, and criminal possession of a weapon. 
he will be tried as a juvenile in family court. A Los Angeles police officer was arrested and charged with violating a corpse after he allegedly fondled a dead woman's breasts. Officer David Rojas and his partner responded to a call of a possibly deceased woman on October 20th. After confirming that the woman had died, Rojas's partner went to retrieve something from their patrol car, leaving Rojas alone with a dead woman. Rojas switched off his body camera and fondled the woman's breasts. LAPD body cameras continued to record for two minutes after being switched off, so the officer's body cam captured the incident. Once his supervisors learned of this, Rojas was placed on leave and an investigation was opened. Representatives from the police union called the officer's actions vile and an affront to every law enforcement professional working for the LAPD. Rojas was released Thursday on $20,000 bail. If convicted, he faces a possible maximum sentence of three years in prison. Those were your true crime headlines. Next, the story of Janet Christensen's murder. But first, a quick break. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, the murder of Janet Christensen. Janet Marie Christensen was born on June 19, 1979. She was the seventh of what would be ten siblings. In such a full and lively household, her parents, Janet and Val Christensen, appreciated her easygoing spirit. There was just something about her angelic demeanor that wouldn't permit me to not like her, Val once teased, according to Tears for Janet, a website dedicated to her memory. Early on, Janet showed natural talent for soccer, her parents noting that while she was slight, she could play better than the boys. And she took to her role as big sister, not only to her younger siblings, but to her teammates, becoming a team leader they looked up to. In addition to a deep Mormon faith her parents instilled in her, they encouraged her to stay true to herself. For her 13th birthday, her dad wrote her a letter which went beyond a typical birthday card. It is easy to be caught up in the false values of the world, which consist mostly of material things and self-interest, Val wrote, adding that her challenge was to understand how much she mattered to her parents and to God. With us, he said, you do not have to prove anything. You are accepted for who you are. Janet went on to play basketball during high school until the late-night practices interfered with her job delivering early morning newspapers. Unlike some teens who would have skimped on sleep in order to make both happen, she chose to drop basketball. Still, she continued to excel at soccer through graduation and into college at Southern Virginia University, where she maintained a 4.0 GPA. During her first year of college, Janet met Raven Abaroa, a man as conventionally attractive as she was and known to win over a room with his charms. In an interview with 2020, Janet's brother Mark described his sister coming home for the holidays that year, eager to introduce her new beau to her family. Great, she's happy. She met someone. This is fantastic, Mark recalled thinking. But the moment he met the man who had won Janet's heart, 
He felt uneasy. I felt like he was trying too hard to charm me, he said. Trying to charm everyone. Trying to win people over. To make them like him. And to me, it felt forced. Maybe he was just being a protective brother. Or maybe he was right. Janet and Abaroa shared a passion for soccer and Mormon values, which were prevalent at their school. And their relationship grew serious quickly, leading to marriage just two years later. In August of 2000, Janet married Abaroa. A photo from the wedding day shows young Janet wearing a traditional gown, a string of pearls draped around her neck, and her hair pulled back with a ring of white roses. You can see her gentle spirit in her kind eyes. Standing beside her, her father looks so proud. Shortly after marrying, the couple moved to Durham, North Carolina for new career opportunities. In the city known as North Carolina's hippest for its bustling creative, culinary, and collegiate scenes, they both took positions at a popular sports apparel company. Any honeymoon period didn't last long though. Just a few years into the marriage, Janet learned that her supposedly devoted husband was cheating on her with several women. So the couple separated. Soon after, Janet realized she was pregnant. Fearful of raising a baby on her own, Janet tried to work things out with her husband, who promised that he'd change. He promised, swore up and down, that he would no longer cheat on her, that she was the only one for him, he would make it work, Janet's sister Sonia told ABC News. And in October of 2004, they welcomed a baby boy they named Caden. Regardless of how the marriage was going at that point, Abaroa was engaging in another type of deception. Just two months after Caden's birth, Abaroa was caught stealing from the company he and Janet worked for. Later, he would plead guilty to five charges of embezzlement, but avoid jail time. Both he and Janet sought new jobs. Then, the following spring, the unthinkable happened. On April 26, 2005, Abaroa called the police, telling the 911 operator, my wife is dead. She's been shot or something. There's blood everywhere. She's not breathing. Durham police arrived to find Janet's body stabbed to death, with wounds in her neck and chest. Abaroa told authorities earlier that evening that Janet was getting ready for bed when he left to play soccer with some friends, and he returned shortly before 11 p.m., finding his wife lifeless on the floor of their upstairs office. Baby Caden was in another room, unharmed. Nothing else in the home seemed disturbed, there were no signs of robbery or forced entry. Later, an autopsy showed that in addition to the stab wounds to her neck and chest, Janet had slash marks on her right finger. The wound at the base of her neck had severed an artery into her lungs. The autopsy also revealed that she was pregnant at the time of her death, making it a double murder case. The investigation seemed to move along slowly, lasting weeks, then months, and eventually several years. Authorities didn't consider her death random, but didn't name any official suspects. 
Janet's family, however, believed her husband was to blame. Investigators shared those suspicions, but without sufficient physical evidence, there was little they could do. For a while, it seemed that life would have to go on without anyone ever paying for the murder. Not long after Janet's murder, Abaroa moved to Salt Lake City, Utah, with her son. There, he met another single parent, Vanessa Pond, at a daycare center. To Vanessa, Abaroa seemed, quote, very upfront, honest, and genuine, she later told reporters. Adding that she admired that the 28-year-old widower took care of his son on his own, challenges she knew well. Prior to meeting Abaroa, Janet was pretty skeptical of men other than her father, Randy, who once jokingly referred to her as president of the man-hating club. Abaroa's charm blew through that, and she decided to give him a chance. When they first started dating and she learned that his wife had died, she felt deep compassion for him, she told 2020 investigative reporter John Quinones, who helped bring new light to the lingering case. As for how she died, Abaroa said an intruder had killed Janet and he had discovered her body. When he didn't offer any more information about the circumstances of her death, Vanessa's curiosity led her to do a bit of web searching. She sat at her computer late into that night, scrolling through articles and headlines about the case. Durham woman murdered, three stab wounds. And she came upon a striking interview with Abaroa from shortly after the murder. After watching it, she said, she was not convinced of his innocence. When she asked him more questions, he assuaged all of her doubts, suggesting that the police treated him badly. Within just a few weeks of dating, Abaroa wanted to move in with Vanessa. She wasn't comfortable cohabitating unless she knew they would be together long-term. And at that time, long-term was exactly what she wanted. Vanessa's dad, though, a policeman, had a bad feeling about Abaroa and arranged a family meeting with the man. He asked Abaroa point-blank if he had anything to do with Janet's murder. A question he sidestepped, Val said, in an interview with Quinones. Abaroa only said he loved his wife, which wasn't exactly denying his involvement. When tears poured down his cheeks, Vanessa consoled him. Not long after, he asked Vanessa to marry him. After saying their I do's in a backyard ceremony, the couple left for a honeymoon in Vegas. There, Abaroa opened up about his first wife in ways he hadn't before, stating how angry he was after her death. Not sad, but angry, she recalled. Then he snuggled up to Vanessa and said, I promise I'll never hurt you. Why would someone you just married feel compelled to say that? This scared Vanessa, as did an out-of-the-blue outburst from Abaroa that would become commonplace. Within moments, he could switch, she told Quinones. He could say the most horrible things, including frequently calling her an effing whore. Before long, his outburst became physical. He once grabbed her and threw her up against a wall, she said, then tried to convince her that she had tripped. What Vanessa described sounds like gaslighting, a type of persistent brainwashing and manipulation that causes the victim to doubt themselves and potentially lose their own sense of perception 
identity, and self-worth. The abuser twists the truth until you start to question your own sanity. It often starts with lies and exaggeration, becomes repetitive, and then escalates once the victim feels challenged. Sometimes the abuser starts involving friends and family of the victim in the lies and manipulation. That may explain what happened next. Abaroa started reaching out to Vanessa's loved ones, telling them that she was deeply depressed, likely had bipolar disorder, and needed to be institutionalized, which might have been helpful if any of that were true. Just a few months into the marriage, as the holidays approached, Vanessa feared her husband enough to begin considering a way to leave him, something that's often difficult and potentially dangerous for abuse victims to do without support, which is one reason reaching out to abuse hotlines can be so helpful. Just before a family Christmas gathering, Abaroa attacked Vanessa, yelling and hitting her in the chest, hard enough to cause bruising. Then he started packing up his things as though he were going to leave. When she didn't stop him, she said, he grew angrier. Vanessa couldn't wait any longer to leave. The couple separated and their marriage was annulled. In the spring of 2009, Vanessa stated publicly that she feared Abaroa had killed his first wife, Janet. At that point, the Durham Police Department assigned a new detective, Charles Soule, to the case to comb through the collected evidence. Fresh eyes often bring a fresh perspective and sometimes important leads. Thankfully, that's exactly what panned out. As he analyzed the case files, a few things stood out to Soule as red flags. First, Abaroa never kept the lies straight, Soul told 2020. His statements to law enforcement initially, they were contradictory. He also noticed that in crime scene photos, a contact lens case sat on the bedside table, an open contact lens case. Given that the tops were off, Janet was probably wearing her contacts when she was killed, Soul speculated. This contradicted Abaroa's claim that his wife had been getting ready for bed when he left for the soccer game that night. Another oddity involved blood evidence. In Abaroa's statement to the police, he had said that he hugged his slain wife upon finding her. Yet, his clothing from that night had only minimal blood stains. Finally, on February 1st, 2010, five years after Janet's death, Raven Abaroa was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. That summer, after Janet's body was exhumed, authorities confirmed that she was indeed killed while wearing her contacts. Three years later, the trial began. Testimony spanned 19 days, shared over the course of five weeks, and involved 565 pieces of evidence and 82 witness accounts. After the jury heard the case from both sides, they asked to review a few things, including the 911 call Abaroa initially made, bank statements, phone records, crime scene photos, DNA reports, the clothing he was wearing the night of the murder, and the video Vanessa had come upon, that curious night that ended with suspicion. In the four-minute clip, Abaroa filmed right after a phone call with local homicide detectives, less than a month before his arrest. He seems frustrated and talked about needing to win the lottery. If I were to win $3 million, I'd dedicate $2 million to fighting this, he says, adding that he would use the remaining million to secure a future for his son, 
O, and to make Janet's name more recognized. The video ends with Abaroa sitting with a pen in his mouth for about a minute, sporting an expression the prosecution used against him in court. During closing arguments, the Durham County Assistant District Attorney told jurors, that might be the most honest look you've gotten at the defendant this whole trial. He needs to win the lottery because that will end his problems. He talks about a fight. What's he fighting against? He's not fighting to find the killer of his wife who might still be out there. He's already preparing for the fight. As for Janet, how'd he treat Janet? She's an afterthought. While they didn't offer a clear motive for the murder, prosecutors said Abaroa was living well beyond his means and beginning to feel the consequences. A $500,000 life insurance policy on Janet, they said, could have solved his financial woes. They portrayed Janet as damaged and submissive, according to a report by Durham's WRAL5, and someone who feared her controlling, unfaithful, and verbally abusive husband. The defense team argued that emails Janet had written revealed her as a strong-willed woman who trusted her husband and wasn't controlled at all by him, suggesting that the state molded a case against Abaroa, portraying him and their marriage inaccurately. They said police had ignored important evidence, such as a bloodstain on a side door to the home containing unidentified DNA that could have pointed to another suspect. A bloody shoe print found at the crime scene wasn't identified either, they said, nor was a fingerprint on a closet door that didn't match Janet or her husband. After deliberating and reviewing all of the requested evidence, the jury couldn't agree on a verdict. One juror didn't believe they could convict Abaroa beyond a shadow of a doubt. They deadlocked, 11 to 1, and the judge declared a mistrial. Before the second trial scheduled to begin in March 2014, Abaroa entered an Alford plea for voluntary manslaughter. This meant he acknowledged that there was enough evidence to convict him, but didn't admit any guilt. The judge sentenced him to 95 to 123 months in jail, but he was granted credit for the four years he had already spent behind bars, leading up to the trial as time served. While Abaroa never testified at his trial, he did share some words after hearing his sentence. I would like to state that I didn't receive a fair trial the first time, he said in court. I don't think I'll receive a fair trial a second time. I don't think it's worth risking the possibility of spending the rest of my life in prison for something I didn't do. I take this plea to ensure that doesn't happen, and that's the only reason. I didn't kill my wife. Abaroa, now 41 years old, was released from prison on Christmas Day, 2017. To any other women who might cross paths with Abaroa, Vanessa had this to say in an interview with ABC News. Please listen to what's out there, what's available on the internet. Please don't be drawn in and please get away as fast as you can. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. For exclusive content and early access, find the show on Himalaya.